Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Rama Rao, a filmmaker whose documentary credits include No Place to Hide, The Retea Parsons Story, League of Exotic Dancers, and The Daughter Tree, as well as the TV series My Big Fat Punjabi Wedding. Her first dramatic feature, Honey Bee, premiered at the Canadian Film Fest earlier this year and is opening in Toronto this Friday, September 20th, before rolling out to other Canadian cities in the weeks to come. It's a simple, no-nonsense character study starring Julia Sarah Stone as a young sex worker offered a chance to reinvent herself after an arrest. You should keep an eye out for it. Rama picked Fish Tank, Andrea Arnold's 2009 drama about what happens when 15-year-old Mia, who's trying to figure herself out on an Essex Council estate, meets Connor, her mother's charming new boyfriend. A total change of pace from Arnold's first feature, Red Road, which positioned itself as a slow-burn thriller about surveillance, Fish Tank puts us inside the head of its rebellious protagonist, but also lets us see her from the outside, with newcomer Katie Jarvis holding the screen as Mia against Michael Fassbender as Connor and Kirsten Waring as Mia's mother, Joanne. The film shared the Cannes Jury Prize with Park Chan-wook's Thirst and went on to scoop up any number of critics' awards. And rightly so. It's raw, it's challenging, it's powerful. Oh, and because we recorded this episode at the tail end of TIFF, the conversation naturally turns to stuff we've seen at the festival. Honestly, I'm amazed I was still speaking in complete sentences. This is someone else's movie. I was kind of doing my research on how do I start, you know, entering this this film that I want to make. I knew I wanted to make a socially relevant film because I come from the world of documentary. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about documentary that's that I fell in love with. You know, it's the rough around the edges. It's the real, it's the not packaged for the audience kind of look that I wanted to take. And for me, the Darden brothers initially were my go-to filmmakers and I love Rosetta so much and L'Enfant, Lafitte, you know, every, every one of their films is just a masterclass in um, how I can um, occupy that space between uh, documentary and fiction. Mm-hmm. And then I heard about Andrea Arnold, you know, and then I watched Fish Tank and I loved it. I loved the way she takes the young female protagonist, which is what my film had, and and uses this, and uh, uh, critics call it the lived-in world. And I love that term because um, that's what documentary does. It's it, There's no production design and there's no artificial, you know, things going on. It's just this world and you happen to be a part of it as an audience. Like For the camera me, had stumbled into it. Exactly, right? It's like this girl is just living her life and you're just observing. And it wasn't, you know, camera angles and uh, fanciful filmmaking. So for me, that's what I loved about uh, Fish Tank. And then, you know, it's the harshness of that world. And uh, Fassbender's performance is amazing. But more than anything else is Mia, the main character. And I totally stole from that film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My secret fantasy is to be the Andrea Arnold of Canada. But don't tell anyone that. Um, and no, I I've, I had seen her short um, Milk and then I saw Wasp, which won an Oscar for shorts. Yeah. And uh, American Honey, too, she does go in that vein, but I think it's a little more Americanized. It's a little more mainstream, shall we say. But she still has that quality I love, which is social realism in the world of cinema. Yeah, I first saw her, I must have seen, I know I saw Wasp because when it won the Oscar, I knew which one it was. Mm -hmm. But I first encountered her as a feature filmmaker with um, Red Road. Yes. uh, Which did not prepare me for Fish Tank. I mean, Mm. they're both films about 
female obsession, technically. Yeah. They share a certain thread, but Red Road is far more, um, how can I put this? It's much more on side with the audience. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. It knows the character is doing, it knows that Kate Dickey is doing something self-destructive and foolish. Uh, it takes its time explaining why, but it clearly, it, it, it shares our perspective. It yes. tells us that, you know, we know too. It's yes. okay. She's, we're doing this for a reason. Fish Tank is much more ambiguous, yes. which is amazing storytelling. Yes. Just the idea that the, the movie itself seems to be waiting to see which way this goes. That's the thing, right? It's because the camera, that's what I um, really discovered. Uh, the camera moves with the character and mm. you're discovering the film the story along with the character, which is what I think the filmmaking, uh, it makes it so so powerful. Yeah. Well, that's what the Dardenne do, right? They yes. follow along. They, right. They, they and that's what documentary people. does. And that's why I adored that film so much. I, I, I remember uh, during our prep, I sat down with my uh, camera, uh, my DP, Steve Cousins, and we both watched Fish Tank because I'd already seen it, but I knew this is the vein I wanted to try. Mm-hmm. So we would, you know, everything. We'd follow the character. It's it's all Dardenne and uh, Andrea Arnold. I really owe them my uh, feel that I wanted to go with for the film. But, oh, my God. Like, if you remember, Fish Tank opens with breathing. It's just heavy breathing, and then you just see this girl and she's doing things and you're just going with her and suddenly she starts dancing. It's just so unchoreographed. Um, I, I don't know if I captured that in uh, my film, Honeybee, but God knows I attempted to. Honeybee struck me as more, I mean, it seems more intentionally polished. It has, it's in scope, which sort of right away establishes a certain cinematic mm-hmm. thing. And Fish Tank is in 4 by 3 Yes. Uh, I think to make it resonate with Ken Loach and Mike Lee's earlier stuff, the play for the day, and, yes. uh, or play for today, I think is what they called it in England. And the sense that you're watching, I mean, verite, right? Yeah. Like you might as well be watching a documentary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not that Honeybee doesn't work. Uh, I think it's, it's really... Um, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but Julius Airstone is just such a fascinating presence mm-hmm. that just to put a camera on her is to make a good movie. Yeah. And then the fact that there's more going on and there's a story being told and, and emotional stuff. Uh, the, but the resonance between your film and Fish Tank is there. Like it's about a young woman's sexuality and it's about someone learning to use their power for good, if that makes any sense. Yeah, or at least I think for it's, it's discovering herself. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I like that you brought up the 4-3 because f- for us, uh, the screen ratio is very important and Steve and I talked about it. And uh, we chose in the end to go with 16-9 really because of the cinematic. We were hoping to get a theatrical release, which we are. Sure. But also because the truck stop itself is this is this character almost that... Uh, we wanted to capture, and it was just so much. Landscape was so much uh, better in sixteen nine. Yeah. So I said, you know, well, maybe trucks and widescreen. Right? Yeah, right. And so you well. need that. You need that kind of uh, space. Um, but I'm thinking maybe my next film. I, I don't know. I'll try four three. But that's something that I really want to explore. Is that the documentary influence as well? So um, many of those absolutely. classics are shot yeah, in square format. Absolutely, and I think that gets you into the character's head. But for this uh, film, for Honeybee, I think in the end we decided 16.9 because it just gave us a lot of space to, to play in. And, and then we started following uh, Julia. You know, we started literally following her around as she found herself. And uh, Julia totally took to the whole story. And, you know, I think she had prepared so much mentally before even coming on set, months of just reading and and she um, followed a lot of um, sex workers like on Twitter, like, you know, she really did her research. We took her to meet some um, uh, police uh, who had actually worked with these girls. Oh, yeah. 
And it really helped that she came from, and for me, having worked in documentary, it was important that we tell the story from the inside. Um, Ideally, honestly, I'd have made this a documentary, but none of these girls would come forward with their stories. And when I stumbled on this story, I said, I really would really want to tell this film, to tell the story and make this film about this girl who's been trafficked and is too young. And how do you navigate life when you're so young and so exploited? Yeah, and how do you find your way back? Yeah. I mean, ultimately to who you used to exactly. be. Exactly, yeah. If that's even possible. And that's what I think in the end... Um, um, fascinated me about this story. At that time, it was called Natalie, the script. Well, first it was called Truck Stop, and then Natalie, and now it's called Honeybee. Um, I think that was why, for me, it was different. It wasn't just an exploitation story. It was really about a girl finding her way back into adulthood, really, into teen, actually. Te- more yeah. than adulthood, it's teenhood. And being a normal, crazy teen for me, and that's why that whole party where they, you know, just listen to music and they're fooling around and drinking too much. That's what you should be doing in your teen years, yeah. not you know trying yeah. to get clients at a truck stop. Yeah, so, making the good kind of mistakes. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. So that was what drew me to this story, and it was heart wrenching at some moments. Trust me, for us, the crew. Even reading the script initially, I was like, do I really want to tell the story? Do I really want to add to the body of exploitative films? And then I said, no, if it's a woman director, if it's me, if it's if you're coming from the right place, you won't be making an exploitative story. You'll be t- talking about the girls and the women and the voiceless people so far who've been trying to tell their story. Yeah, it's far too sympathetic for me to consider it exploitative. Also, you you make a point of avoiding nudity, avoiding, mm-hmm. avoiding you know... Um, excessive violence mm-hmm. it's it's much more it's i find it much more disturbing when you just see a photograph of someone who's been beaten exactly and you find out that this is going on yeah it's, it's far more shocking yeah and it's how the character would experience it. yeah yeah and i'm glad you said that because um it's so easy honestly for a director to say we'll do this and we'll do that and you know to get carried away by your own sense of power on set and uh, like i said as a woman uh storyteller for me it's very very important to to be respectful of the story, to be respectful of my actors, and really to to honor my own reason why I'm telling the story and why other people would work with you on the story, right? It's so easy to say, uh, she's young, we'll make a new, strip her down, you know. Of course, if the story needs it, absolutely, we should do it. But I knew I could tell this, and just camera angles, you know. I think your imagination is so much better than uh, showing things. So for me, it was important that we show the truck stop in its gritty uh, reality, but to also allow you to say, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening and add your layer of what you think could happen. Sure. I mean, there's a deliberate decision to frame certain acts just below. Yes. Or just to the side. Yes. And that is, yeah, you're right. You fill in the blanks. Yes. Plus, we all know what's going on. Yeah. It's mechanical. I don't know that we need to see all of it. Yeah. Fish Tank sort of has a similar approach yeah. in that we're catching things just as they happen or just yeah. as they don't happen. And I, mean, I wanted to, I wanted to ask um, uh, questions about collaborative influences and the way that that Arnold has clearly worked with these actors, rehearsed them to pieces, I and mean, just the, the dancing numbers alone uh, are fascinating. But when you're putting people in these tents awkward, electric situations. And this was with, I mean, Michael Fassbender, who had made two or three, I guess he'd already been I think the, he'd just already made out. Hunger, right? Yeah. So he'd, he'd, he'd been the lead yeah. once at yeah. least. And he was, 
I mean, I met him right around that time. He was one of the most magnetic human oh, beings yeah. I've ever Fassbender encountered. Oh, yeah. is one of our best actors. But also personally, like his charisma, you could fall in love with him in mm-hmm, the room. Mm-hmm. And to have this young, unknown presence with this slightly older electric unknown presence and just to have that chemistry going on, there's a sense, you know, the she does it in Red Road too, in the one in that one scene, mm-hmm. which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it. But there is this moment, or there are repeatedly there are moments in Fish Tank where it is entirely possible that someone is just going to grab somebody else and just break the story apart completely. And it's that tension that doesn't ever resolve itself. I mean, for for two hours, we're we're in this space with them, and nothing is. People are doing things and making decisions, and they're the wrong choice every time. But that's what happens, again, when you're a teenager who just wants to leave home. You grab onto whatever you can, even if it's your mother's boyfriend. And just there's this sense that we're watching these little disasters happen in real time. Honeybee is the opposite. It's someone who is clawing her way out. She backslides. But there's a we have a rooting interest in, in, uh, in her that we don't have in... In Fish Tank, because for the most part, Fish Tank just feels like we're watching these strange creatures bump against each other and and not learn. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, it's just a fascinating contrast. I know. And for me, like I said, coming from documentary, I really wanted to give to empower the actors to make them live in that world. If only for those days that we were shooting. For instance, with Ryan, the pimp character, mm-hmm. I I had told him not to interact too much with anyone on set. Uh, I wanted it's I don't even want to call it method acting because I think that's a bit pompous. Right. I just think I wanted them to dwell in that skin for as long a time as I could uh, have them do it. And um even Julia was Natalie until we finished. It was that's where the vulnerability comes from her eyes. And for me it was I I didn't choreograph like the dance in the opening. I didn't choreograph it at all. Okay. I just said, do this, do whatever we and and the camera finds the story. The camera goes just like a documentary, and uh, Steve too. And that's why for me it was important that I work with the DP, a director of photography, who had worked in both fiction and uh, documentary. Because in documentary we find our story, sure. and I needed that energy for this film because I think a story like this is so powerful and so scary and so intense that you don't want to even look at it. We are in denial that this thing happens. And because documentary, we deal with such tough topics, uh, we force people to watch it, not by shoving it down people's throat, but really by just shining a light on this weird world that you may not even know about. So for me, that's where I came from, where nothing was choreographed. I had no idea where the actors would walk. So the director would literally, the director of photography would literally follow them through the set, you know? So I think that really gave that energy. And at some time, the, sometimes the room was so small we couldn't really move and then we just kind of just move the camera because for me when two people are talking in a documentary the camera moves from person to person because you're the camera is the person the third person in the room right. and when you if you remember the scenes where she's talking uh, you know with um, with other people it's always from her point of view and we are always in her head so really, that that's where I didn't really go with the Andrea Arnold, uh, what she had set up, which for me, I, so like I said, I just took styles that suited me, that suited where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, that was, I think, why um, in the end, Julia was so empathetic because we're really seeing everything through her. In fact, we deleted a lot of scenes because uh, 
they were just two different characters without Julia. And Julia is in 100% of the scenes. Yeah, you really do need her. Yeah, everywhere. You just see it through her POV. Otherwise, the film wouldn't, for me, didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So what was it, more family stuff, more police stuff? It was actually uh, Martha Plimpton with um, uh, with her husband. And, you know, like, I, I, it was, we shot it and then we didn't use it because, like I said, it was just the foster parents and their self-doubt and why are we having these kids. So it was kind of a very different point of POV. Yeah. It was a third-person a third point of view, so it didn't really fit in. Well, I was sad. seen before, right? I mean, we, we know what that looks exactly. like. Exactly. And I didn't want the omnipresent author point, point of view. I hate that because, like I said, um, the film is Natalie's. It's her journey from being exploited making mistakes, slipping back to finding her. And that's why the film has to end. Like, that's another thing. We had a different ending. We reshot that. For me, it was like it had to go bang, go to black, because that's it. I don't want to, you know, know anything more. And for me, when a film is bloated and two and a half hours long, which at TIFF we've seen a lot of yes. this year for some reason, it's just, you know, it's not lean enough. And I think, again, that's what documentary taught me, to be lean and just run with what you got. Yeah. Well, some of the best films I've seen just actually just recently have done exactly what you do in Honeybee where they stop in momentum. So mm -hmm. you just, you keep moving even though the film has stopped mm -hmm. and you have that sense that there's more to come, which is great because you should be left wanting more of the narrative, but also you should be left at a point where, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't need to see it. Yeah. Um, Sound of Metal is one that just has yes, perfect I just ending. saw that. You know, it's so weird that you mentioned Sound of Metal oh, yeah. because I watched it and when he does the thing in the end, I was like, oh my God, they need to cut to black now and bam, it cuts to black. I was like, yes, yeah. oh God. So satisfying and I remember coming out and saying, that is a movie. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's wonderful. You um, have to give the audience credit for intelligence. We know what to do. So absolutely, I think, thank you for mentioning Sound of Metal because that totally satisfied all my storytelling yeah. <laughs> needs. Well, and it's another deeply internal film of one character absolutely. trying to figure out what to do. See, right? if you remember, even in that film, they were totally on his face at all times. Yeah. And I love that. I think I think that's a very satisfying way of telling a story. And it's not a very um, Hollywood way of telling a story. I think it's more European, mm -hmm. specifically Dardenne Brothers. I'm sure there are others that I don't even know about, but I've just watched so much of the Dardenne Brothers films that I adore them. Sure. Um, Kazakrodwanski's film, uh, Friend of the yes. Show, uh, Anna 13,000 yes. Feet, is also yeah. just Derek Campbell for mm -hmm. 72 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's thrilling. Um She's she's fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, but she's again. It's it's the combination of an actor who can carry a film with his or her eyes mm -hmm. and a story that is dependent on a person rather than a narrative. Yes. Uh, Sound of Metal has a gimmick. Obviously, you know, a musician goes deaf, but it doesn't do the things that you expect it to. No. Do. Um, and and at thirteen thousand feet is about a woman in crisis, but it is like experiencing a Cassavetes film where the camera never leaves the person's face, yeah. and it's just it's excruciating. Yeah. Um, have you seen that? No, I haven't oh, yet seen. I've, I, I will tremendous. though. It's on my list. It's, it really. I mean, I mean, I know Kaz at this point. He's a friend, and it's still just it's a stunning piece of work nice. from him. And uh, I would say the same about Sound of Metal. If I knew Darius Martyr, he's. I know, wow, right? Right. No, First that feature. was That's that was a very, very good achievement because, and Riz Ahmed, I really want to work with him because his eyes, oh my God, they yeah. tell such a story. And have you seen it's all gone Pitong? Yeah, it's funny. I was not a fan of that. No, I, well, 
it's a different film. Mm-hmm. It's more Ibiza, and, yeah, you know. I just, maybe it's the culture. I was, I, I was just reminded of that because of the deafness. And I kind of wondered if this film would go that way, but it, it dealt with it pretty fast. Like the inciting incident itself was, and then you... Yeah, it's not about the process. It's yeah, about the recovery. Yeah, yeah. Or the, or the redefinition. Exactly. Uh, which is like Honeybee. Again, you know, you get it. She's, uh, let's see, this isn't a spoiler. It happens in the first 20 minutes of the film. That's all yes. fine for me. She's arrested mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. and thrown out of her life. And yeah. so she has to figure out what it is it's going to be, what what it is she's going to be doing next yeah. and how that happens. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I... It could be seen as a film about trafficking, but it is, it's really about a young woman finding her voice, finding agency. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, for me, as a storyteller, as a writer, director, it's so important to bring voices. And in my documentary, I've always tried to do that, where you're just trying to express something where it's not been expressed. These stories need to be told. And for me, that's why... I thought it's, it forms a part of my the rest of my work because it was hard for me to initially to find a way in. And then I had to sit down with it and say, why do I really want... The, I, my instincts are telling me to tell this story, but why do I want to say it? Why? You know, because it's important to know why you're doing what you're doing, to do it well, to do it sincerely and to do it with a passion that filmmaking needs because, God, we take so long in yeah. <laughs> making these films. Yeah, I've just... I've, just seen 60 of them at TIFF oh, and wow. I guarantee you not all of them were made with passion. <laughs> uh, I missed, actually, I realize now I missed Fish Tank at TIFF. I don't know that I've ever seen an Andrea Arnold film at the film festival. I always mm, catch up I've with I've seen later. American Honey at the TIFF, I think, two years ago. How did that play with people? Because it it's unlike <laughs> People were walking right? out. Uh, I did not like Shia LaBeouf's character in it. I thought he was annoying. But I loved the main uh, girl. I forget her name right now. But she, you know the story, right? Yeah, they so found her. She, Andrea found her on a beach in Florida, Miami, I think. But that's what I dream of, to go up to someone and say, hey, can you be in my film? <laughs> yeah, that's the documentary approach, right? I know, it is. <laughs> can, I just, can I just take part of it yeah, and yeah, use it? Exactly. And we do it in, like, you know, the truck stop, they had told us, yo, you may not be able to shoot in an actual truck stop. I just went up to these drivers in... Um, North Bay, and I said, hey, we're shooting a movie. Can we use your truck stop? And they were like, yeah. And we had it. And as we shot it, a lot of the scenes we shot like a documentary. You know, we just ran in and shot stuff before they threw us out. <laughs> For me, that's the thrill of making sure. a documentary. Half the time, you barely have location uh, permits. Although in this one, we shot it properly because the producers, you know, sure. they got location Seeing permits. Cheap. Yeah. But a lot of it was just following characters. You know, f- they knew, but we didn't know at what point they would do something. So that was very exciting. I loved, I want to make more films in that vein and see where I can push it because uh, there's always, you know, the, the, the edges are being blurred and I love that. It's not, it's not about dramatizing documentary for me. It's more about documentarizing fiction, if right. I may. <laughs> no, I understand that. Um, uh, in fact, Heather Young's film, Murmur, yes. uh, which just won the Fapresci Prize. Yes, the I saw that. Uh, that woman is someone I've known. Like she's Shan McDonald. Right? She's yeah. a non-professional. She's, yeah. And she's incredible. She's yeah. in her 60s and she inhabits that frame. And again, the film, it's another one that's um, four by three, I think. Okay. It's definitely not. I have to watch it yeah. because I, I'm, I'm following her career and I'd love to see the film. So have you yeah. seen it? I did. Yeah. And? Oh, um, if you've ever had a sick dog, you're not going to want to watch it. Oh. It's very intimate about veterinary care okay. which which sounds like a weird way to sell a film but yeah. it's not about that but it I mean there's there are scenes of surgery that are there for the documentary feel of it there I mean, okay. it's, it's real surgery in a fictional film okay um it's just a, a 
a dog getting spayed, but it's one of those things where it's like, yep, those are organs. That's really happening. <laughs> Uh, and there's no reason to, like, why would you fake something like this? Yeah. They, they don't have the money to do that. It yeah. has to be real. And it just sells the reality mm. for the fictional narrative that's going on. Um, it was really, I, 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 yeah, Dexter is 10. I don't need to see that again for a while. <laughs> but it's really, really powerful and, um, and very acutely observed in much the same way. Uh, it, you're just watching someone go through a crisis and not understand it and deal badly with it. Mm-hmm. And it just, again, it's one of those films where the movie is aware that these are bad decisions. It's not standing in judgment of her, but it knows mm-hmm. this can't end well. And mm-hmm. it just proceeds and progresses and you just, you're, you're, you know, this fist around your heart just keeps getting tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fun for everyone. I know. <laughs> but, um, but a really powerful experience and one that ends on a note of um, maybe not hope, you know, just possibly tiny little bits of progress or, mm-hmm. or all that this person can ask for at this stage in her life. Mm. And that in itself is it's really quite powerful. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that nice. was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I keep trying to cut to, to, I keep trying to come back to fish tank in the, in the idea of desperation uh, that sort of drives honeybee. And it's also in murmur and a few yeah. other films. And, yeah. And the 13,000 has it too where you're watching people try to break out of a structure they don't understand. Mm. And so Mia is pushing back because she's a because she's a teenage girl, because she's rebellious, because she is asserting herself. All of these things are true and also she's not wrong, right? Like it's exactly, not yeah. just western teenager rebellion. Yeah. She's correct in assuming yeah. that there's nothing for her here except her mother's boyfriend, mm-hmm. which is a terrible idea that she enjoys. And so you're watching someone risking her future by arguing that she deserves one. And I found that that conflict is something that I don't think I've ever seen expressed anywhere else. I I, I think it really res- that resonated for me because I grew up in India in a Catholic school. Oh. Okay. And I grew up a rebel. Like I, And at home, you know, my mother was telling me what to do. So for me, getting kicked out of school was like a dream that I was always pushing to do, but no one kicked me out. Okay. But I was always being thrown out of my class and made to stand outside class. So for me, Mia's character, just I just adored her. You know, like, absolutely, we see why she's doing what she's doing. And you know what? Institutions don't make sense, really. And these young women who have to fight against it, and they become symbols almost of, of our need to break free of the, the, the chains. Or, you know, it's just... And it's really a coming of age that women haven't seen at all. We've not had that kind of... Uh, um, Men have had, boys have had so many coming-of-age films, really. Stories, not just films. And women, I think, do it in a very different way. We do it in an insidious way. We disrupt. We don't break the chains and glorious freedom. We don't have that at all available to us. We more, we question authority. Um, We go off and seduce a mother's boyfriend. Or we just lie down and refuse to do things. There's so many different ways. I think we are forced to use our cunning and for me, that was fascinating because that's for me what um, uh, Natalie was doing in Honey Bee and what Julia brought. She brought this intelligence. Julia is a very intelligent person. She brought this, you know, it's not just, oh, I've been exploited. It's more about how do I use what I've been taught to get to where I want. Yeah, you what, know? Is, what is the best way exactly. to help someone? Yeah. And I think as women, we really do that a lot. I think we really sit back and we like, okay. This is what I have. This is what I need to do. So 
so I'll do X to do that. And it's not about morality, it's about survival. Mm-hmm. And that's what fast for me, that was a parallel between Mia and Natalie. And I, like I said, I totally studied Fish Tank and I'll watch it. I'll watch it a hundred times more, I'm sure. It's like for me, um, another person's movie really also is about is in the mood for love. You know, that's my masterclass in cinema itself. But for Honeybee, I watched Fish Tank specifically. So you know what I mean? It's more like, oh, my God, the director's done such a great job. If only I could do half of that, quarter of that, I'd be happy, you know, to achieve that. So it's really a goal that you set yourself. (laughs) And I think um, Andrea Arnold's just... Just so it, she makes it look so easy. <laughs> like I was saying, oh my God, she has bugs in every film. What do you think I I could have? I, I literally uh, sit like down and and your signature, yeah, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But these uh, she really has influenced a lot of my uh, work, and I can't wait to see what she'll do next. But I think she's gone to TV series now. She just came out of um, a season of of uh, Big Little Lies, yes. right? Which no one oh, yeah. was happy about. Yes, she, shot she it, but said didn't that. The, cut yeah, it. yeah, she said that the producers made a do some things that she didn't. Yeah, well, the, the story, that the version of the story going around, uh, officially anyway, is that apparently the intention was always that she would not actually complete the version, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. I mean, why would you hire her exactly. and not want her to That's cut the it? thing. That's the thing. You know, TV series these days, they want big names. They want cinematic directors, but they won't give, I don't know. I well, don't they know don't the real really story. Want it, right? they, yeah. don't want to, they don't fully want to abandon the control. Yeah. Um, you know, Jean-Marc Vallée shooting a David Kelly script makes a lot of sense for the first season yeah. because Kelly is a, an overwriter and Vallée is a minimalist. Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense that those mm-hmm. two would produce something. But... Jean-Marc Vallée is making the thing and cutting it and releasing it. Yeah. Um, I interviewed him when, I think it was the last time we spoke was when Arrival was coming mm-hmm. out. And he was saying that, you know, he was treating it as two movies. He was going to shoot the first three, break, oh, and then shoot the last four. And that way he would know the structure and the rhythms by the time he came, by the time he came to, to the, finish them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Andrea Arnold was given even that latitude, as mm-hmm. I understand it, from mm-hmm. the process. She was just sort of, as as they do in television, you know, here is a thing. Go and mm-hmm. do it. She's parachuted and yeah. doesn't get to do pre-production, doesn't really rehearse yeah. as well as she might have in a feature and has to do this and then is removed from the post-production process, yeah. which, I mean, that is, I understand that for episodic television, but if you're shooting an entire season of a TV series, you are basically making a feature. Usually you get at least two days per episode. Like one would think, yeah. Right? I don't know what happened there, but yeah, interesting to see. Mm-hmm. And and someone as distinctive as, as Arnold, yeah. too, like to not be able to tell people where to come in and out and how to work with the footage that she's got. Yeah, it just, it seems like an incredibly self-destructive idea that you would have to explain at length to someone before exactly. you give them your show. Yeah. <laughs> but this did not happen. So, yeah, I, I haven't watched the season. I don't, no, really, don't neither really want have I. to. I feel yeah. like on some level I'd be betraying her. Mm. <laughs> um, which is weird. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, but I also wonder what um, movie she'll come out with that maybe she's written. A, you know, that's also for me assume, fascinating yeah. to wait for. This is because feel I'm that. I'm wondering if her Americanization is going to kind of ruin her style. What do you mm. think? Would it be like I don't know because American Honey was more mainstream, more well. It was it wasn't Hollywood. American movie, right? like it was an attempt to do yeah. that thing. And I wonder if maybe the Big Little Lies experience will send her running back to the thing she feels I comfortable so. with and yeah. then give her a chance to redevelop it. Yeah. And even her, I, mean, I have some issues with her Wuthering Heights adaptation. I haven't seen that one. But it's gorgeous. I mean, I love Wuthering Heights. In any form, I'll watch it. 
I've watched the old BBC Four ones, but I haven't watched this. I found one a little while ago with Tom Hardy as Heathcliff, really? which makes no sense, but kind of works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, See, Tom Hardy and Michael Fassbender, in my opinion, are two of the best actors we have today. I am. Uh, I am uh, very fond of both of them. I do think that Hardy is a little too fond of accents, and it's starting to hurt. Hardy is getting. Uh, yeah, I know, you know what you he mean. He can be Welsh for a whole movie, and yeah. that's fine. But then you see what he's, he's doing. He's getting and, a bit in love with his own work, shall we say? Possibly. <laughs> I wonder if that. I mean, he really. I, it, I think I first noticed it in the drop, mm. uh, where he was basically doing Adam Sandler, which was just. I mean, sure, it's a choice, <laughs> but uh, be just be Tom Hardy. Yeah. And then again, in Venom, his his yeah, idea of Venom. American is very silly. Yeah. But. That said, Maybe he's made to do it. I don't know. I'm yeah, trying to find excuses just because he's such a You good can't actor. make Tom Hardy do anything he doesn't want True. to do. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, Fassbender is just off doing his own weird thing. And, and he's Yeah, Fassbender, he hasn't sold out. I don't think so. He's... Well, I mean, except that he's made, what, four X-Men movies? <laughs> yeah. But he somehow guess... doesn't feel like he's selling out in those, right? He's bringing yeah. something to them. Yeah. I mean, you wait for these actors to show why they're special, to show, you know, why they are, they've accepted those roles. Mm-hmm. And like Scarlett Johansson, in my opinion, has totally sold out. Oh, so, but I just saw her marriage story, and if she's doing Black oh, Widow you to did. do these, okay, it justifies a lot. Okay, she's I mean, again right. This is uh, uh, Jordan and I talked about this in this very room on a big story episode. Mm-hmm. If these, if there's a way to make these movies that lets you make real movies, like Brie Larson making Captain Marvel means that she can make five more short-term twelves. I'm down. Yeah, I know what you mean because th- I I was having that same thought, saying maybe these actors just do it to make money. It's like how I would totally shoot a commercial film, then come back and make a film I want. Yeah, I mean it can't be that taxing. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, you're standing. It's probably harder than I think it is. You're standing around on green screen. You have to do a lot of it internally and figure out ways to play these characters. But at the same time, you watch Michael Fassbender making wizard hands in an X Men movie, and it's like, <laughs> okay, fine. It's fun. I'm enjoying myself. And yeah. then you get to go off and. I mean, uh, what was it? Uh, Dirk Phoenix. Yeah. Is somehow uh, James McAvoy and Jessica Chastain who gave two of the best performances I've ever seen in one of the best films of the decade in, in The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. And now here they are in this, and, I they're, know. In, and they're in the It sequel with Bill Hader, who was also in Eleanor I Rigby. I was so surprised to see that cast. It was like, really? For It? But I heard the sequel. I haven't watched I haven't it, seen it, the myself, sequel. Yeah, yeah. I heard it, it wasn't right very good. Someone posted on Facebook saying, oh my God, don't don't watch. Yeah, Red wasn't crazy about it. For, he reviewed it for us. Because uh, he'd seen the first one, so he took the hit and took three hours out of his day oh. in the week before TIFF to go see it. Uh, I will catch up to it eventually because I love those actors and I want them to be happy and well-paid. But uh, <laughs> that's how I feel about all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can take or leave the superhero movies. Some of them are fun. Some of them are dopey. But I somehow, I'm like, it's really, I'm very happy to know that Robert Downey Jr. is a multimillionaire because of Iron Man. True. Because of all of these. I actually like going his, off and doing his if, I mean, I'll watch him doing anything. I'll watch yeah. him in any role. I don't care. Yeah, and he's allowed to do whatever he wants now because he's you know, a multi-billion-dollar box office draw. Yeah. So, and in the meantime, he's restoring movie th- uh, theater screens right. for CineFamily yeah. and just being gracious and and running around like being a good guy. Mm-hmm. Chris Evans. Yeah. Uh, who who picks weird indie stuff when he's not making Captain America movies? Again, those movies can get made now because he's interested mm-hmm. in them. And, and somehow we've gotten onto this, but it's a fascinating new paradigm where you do one for them and you do five for yourself. Well, that's what we as directors do too, right? Like we will, uh, like I'd love to get into TV series directing a la Andrea Arnold. Sure. Uh, Presumably with more control. (laughs) Well, 
honestly, to be honest, TV series directing, you, you can forget about control. I was told that you basically are a traffic coordinator. If you're a director on a TV series. So I'm going in with very real picture of the whole thing. But like I said, if I can make a bit of money and then go off, my next film, I want to set it in India. I have two films in the pipeline. So one is set in India and one I'm uh, shooting here. Okay. So, you know, you just, like I said, and I don't blame the actors for wanting to make big budget films and then running off and making an indie. As long exactly. as they get their passions, you know, uh, through a other project, that's fine. I'll watch. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I mm -hmm. kind of, I'm fascinated by the, there was a point, yeah, there was a point in David Copperfield mm -hmm. where Tilda Swinton and Benedict Wong are in the same frame. Yes. And I was suddenly very, very happy that Doctor right? Strange made this possible. Right? I mean, if you <laughs> can know. cast these people in your movie, but also they clearly love being together and then maybe one of them heard about it and offered it to the other. I have no idea how this works. But I thought Wong was amazing. He is. He's I delightful. loved his character. And all these little connections that this yeah. world makes possible. Yeah. Now, it's just, it's it's a really strange new place to negotiate stuff mm -hmm. because, of course, the Marvel project is so huge at this point that, you know, I know people who are in these movies, which is insane to me. <laughs> um, they've, they've, they've cast everyone or they will continue to mm. cast everyone. I mean, Simu Liu just became yes. uh, yes, Shang-Chi yeah. and, and that's something we talked about, he and I, when I interviewed him in the spring for our for Now's uh, Talent to Watch piece and something nice. I'd written about months before. And I completely forgot that I, I apparently I was the first person to make the case besides Simu. And so <laughs> when that happened, there was this little flurry of that article coming back and people reading mm -hmm. it and I just thought, this is nuts. How is this, how is this possible? And then I realized it's because they're eating everything. They've exhausted mm -hmm. all yeah. of the world's resources. Yeah. And so they're turning to... It's true. And I really think it's also a sign of um, Hollywood. I don't want to say Hollywood like it's, but it is in monolith. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's it's a, movies are turning to people of color, women, people that they've ignored all these years, you know, and that's a good thing. Oh, yeah, it turns out there's a huge audience. Yeah, for right? And that's all it is. It's in Canadians. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. We are ignored. that, aren't we? <laughs> and I'm happy. I couldn't be happier. So that's that's really the reality of it, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we, I think we pretty much covered it already, but just uh, in case I missed anything, is there anything in specifically in Fish Tank that you would, or in Ar Andrew Arnold's work beyond what we've discussed, that you would cite as a a thing you've borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own little toolbox? I think the opening scenes are absolutely my uh, honeybee. Uh, like I said, it was my shot list that I totally lifted from hers. And okay. if I ever meet her, I will tell her very shamefacedly but boldly that, oh my God, I stole your film. But uh, honestly, I loved it. I loved every uh, bit of that and the unpreparedness, shall we say, of the camera to actually see what's going on. And, you know, like I said, I've, I, all I wanted to do is capture that energy. And I think she had it. Like I said, for me, it was the first five minutes, I think, of the film that you immediately know what world you're in. Yeah. And that's really what we took, what we borrowed from the film yeah. <laughs> for and Honeybee. It strikes me, too, in Fish Tank that we're seeing... I, I mentioned, you know, she's referencing Loach and Lee and yes. all of that, but we've never seen this reference through a woman's perspective before. No, right? It really makes a difference. Yeah, like absolutely. Just... Especially, like I said, for me, it's really about documentary style in fiction. That's just, and, and she's one of the few people who've embraced that. And that's why for me, she's my ideal. Um, I really want to follow her. You know, it's just, 
I thought I was literally the only person in the world that thought of this. Oh, my God, Andrea Arnold, you know, it was so weird to discover her um, work, really, because I'm sure she was around and I didn't I had no clue. And it was when someone said, oh, my God, that's and I went started, you know, this deep rabbit hole and I did not come out of it for many weeks. (laughs) And I'm so thrilled that there's someone like that who thinks the way I do. And the framing, the like I said, I'm going to try 4-3 next time because um, this is something, and that's the thing, experimentation, right? You should never let yourself be boxed in. I think you should keep trying. And God knows I've failed many times, and it's okay. I embrace failure. I embrace experimentation that goes wrong. It's fine. And that's what documentary teaches you. I'm unafraid of making bad films because, and I think that's something, again, that we should um, remember as filmmakers, yes, of course, you're going to make a few <laughs> complete, you know, no one was going to see them. But hopefully you'll make a few good ones and people will want to watch. <laughs> yeah. And even if someone doesn't see your film, it doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. It true. just means they'll discover it 10 years At from some now. Point. On a, on no, I'm, I'm resigned to a posthumous fame. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. It's just something I tell my friends all the time. It's <laughs> oh, horrible and really funny at the same time. <laughs> I, I hope you get it before that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My thanks to Rama Rao, whose first feature, Honey Bee, opens in Toronto this Friday, September 20th, and rolls out into additional Canadian cities in the coming weeks. You should see it. Thanks also to Suzanne Sheridan. She knows what she did. You can find Rama on Twitter at Rama underscore Rao, and you can find Fish Tank on Blu-ray and DVD in a fine special edition from the Criterion Collection, which includes Arnold's shorts among the supplements. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel and available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, it would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network, like, I don't know, that episode of The Big Story I was talking about. I do a TIFF wrap-up with Jordan Heath-Rollings, and he was nice enough not to mention the massive bags under my eyes. That's the September 16th episode, for those of you listening to this down the line. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.